In this lecture, we'll continue our discussion of cardiovascular diseases and get into a little bit more about both prevention and treatment that might involve both lifestyle and pharmacologic treatment. So let's look at how prevention and treatment of cardiovascular disease ideally would go. Now we know that the majority of cardiovascular disease is the result of poor lifestyle habits. So that means that prevention and treatment ideally would start with changing of lifestyle behaviors. That in fact is the approach that would have the lowest economic cost and actually the fewest side effects. And we know that by looking at cultures and places around the world that routinely have individuals live to be 100 or past 100, but yet have very little chronic disease, very little heart disease. Whereas in the US, heart disease is the number one cause of death. And that's partly because we just don't have ideal lifestyle behaviors. And those things would include physical activity, adequate diet, um, other lifestyle behaviors like smoking or drinking, and those end up leading to the things that promote the development of cardiovascular disease. Cholesterol and poor lipid profiles that end up leading to inflammation and atherosclerosis, high blood pressure, which also contributes to damage to the endothelial cells in the heart and other vessels. And then um, metabolic changes, such as the development of type 2 diabetes, which also greatly increases your risk of heart disease. So what should we do? Is it really possible to treat and reverse heart disease with lifestyle changes? Yes. In fact, the research definitively shows this. Fortunately, again, it is hard to convince people to take this route in terms of preventing and treating heart disease. There are some pretty famous researchers out there, Dr. Estelston and Dr. Ornish, who have actually developed, studied, published very thorough approaches and protocols to treating and even reversing heart disease using very intensive lifestyle modifications. In fact, Dr. Ornish's program really focuses on four main areas. The two biggest are what you eat and how much you move. And we've kind of always known that. But some other things about lifestyle medicine that really have been studied and promoted more recently are the things that also contribute to stress, which stress hormones can contribute to blood pressure and inflammation, and what kind of social support you have, because we are beginning to learn that sometimes mental health status can contribute to stress and cause changes in the sympathetic nervous system that lead to a stress response that furthers the inflammation that may cause atherosclerosis to progress. So there's really six pillars of using lifestyle behaviors as medicine to both treat and reverse many chronic diseases, but in this case, we're talking about heart disease. And we know that exercise is recommended at at least 150 minutes a week of moderate activity, and you could do less than that if you do a more vigorous form of physical activity. Diet ideally should be rich in fruits and vegetables and fiber, and in the U.S., unfortunately, we are very um, poor about following those 
recommendations. In fact, there is a diet specifically for addressing hypertension called Dietary Approaches to Stopping Hypertension. That focuses on whole grains, fruits, and vegetables. If you are going to eat meat and fish to have smaller servings um, or fewer servings per week and per day than we might have in a typical American, what do we call SAD, the standard American diet. There's a lot of research out there on the Mediterranean diet, which again focuses on whole grains, fruits, vegetables, olive oil, beans, nuts, and legumes. And again, if you look at those blue zone areas across the world, places where people routinely live to be 100, these are the kinds of things that they have in their diet. And that combined with their daily movement um, really increases your lifespan. Now, if you combine that with reducing stress, with maintaining social connections, social network and support, getting adequate sleep and avoiding risky substances like tobacco and other recreational drugs and excessive alcohol, um, that also is going to all together really increase your chances of remaining healthy and chronic disease free into your later years. But because this class is specifically part of an exercise science program, let's look then at the effects of exercise that might be beneficial to the cardiovascular system. We know that as a result of exercise, you get a widening of your blood vessels, a vasodilation. And what happens there is that is going to be an acute change, but over time, you are going to see a greater benefit of this because not only are you getting vasodilation, but you're stimulating new vessels with exercise. These positive changes go even into fat cells and muscle cells. So you're getting um, changes to your metabolism that are going to benefit both the adipose tissue and both muscle in your heart and your skeletal muscle. And in general, exercise has an anti-inflammatory effect, which we know um, is a big part of that atherosclerosis development. So these are all going to be big parts of why exercise is critical here and is even part of that um, cardiac rehab process. Now, as I said, unfortunately, here in the U.S., we have a hard time making those behavior changes that are necessary to have a healthy lifestyle. And that's partly because they're really hard. Habits are habits for a reason. They're difficult to change. They just become something we do without truly thinking about it. They're just second nature. And that can be great if it's a healthy habit, but it can be really be detrimental if it is an unhealthy habit. And so behavior change is hard. While that may be the first primary efforts in treating and preventing cardiovascular disease, many times people need um, pharmacologic treatment, either in addition to or as a heavy part of their treatment process because particularly if there is an acute event and they need to manage um, the the electrical system of the heart or they need to vasodilate, some of those things are going to really need medication to address. So this could be in combination with lifestyle factors that we're trying to make a difference. And in some cases, it may be an acute necessary part of that treatment. So here's kind of a summary page, right? We've talked about the different um, concerns with cardiovascular disease. You can have an issue with the electrical conduction of the heart and arrhythmia. So there are some drugs that work to change that electrical conductivity. They are antiarrhythmic 
or antidysrhythmics. Then we talked about blood pressure as being a significant issue that often contributes to some of the other forms of cardiovascular disease. So we have whole categories of drugs that are meant to reduce blood pressure. And one of those is diuretics, which we'll talk about a little bit. Now, angina is one of those precursors, right? When you have a partial occlusion of a blood vessel that leads to chest pain, then you may use a vasodilator to try to relieve that pain. And this could even then be a preventative for future episodes of chest pain and down the road trying to prevent an acute myocardial infarction as well. Now we know then that the primary pathophysiology involved in the majority of cardiovascular disease is atherosclerosis. So part of that atherosclerosis pathophysiology, remember, has to do with a fatty plaque. So lowering lipids is going to be an important part of it. In fact, the lipid profile is one of those things that you check as part of a risk factor for development of cardiovascular disease. And then as that fatty streak progresses in atherosclerosis, you get platelets adhering. So anticoagulants, platelet inhibitors may also be part of that process in preventing further development of atherosclerosis or an acute event like a heart attack. But if a heart attack or um, thrombotic stroke actually occurs, we may need to break down that clot, and that's where thrombolytics come into play. So we'll go into detail on a little bit more of these. And the thing I want you to realize here too, which can make it confusing, but if you think about what they do and how that contributes, we can kind of keep them a little more straight. There are many drugs that are used for multiple categories here. Because some of the pathophysiology is similar in each of them, therefore some of the drugs may be used for multiple different things. So let's start by talking about the mechanism of action of some of these. So let's start with the possibility of either addressing a cardiovascular disease with the sympathetic nervous system or with the cardiac action potential. Now, we could use the sympathetic nervous system to address the heart because it is obviously affected by that fight or flight response that is generated when the sympathetic nervous system is stimulated. And what happens is you get alpha and beta receptors as part of that nervous, um, nervous system response that we can then alter a little bit. So we'll talk about some of those that are in this category, either blocking or binding to um, antagonize or increase the activity of alpha and beta receptors. Or we could look specifically at the electrical conductivity in the heart, which is a sort of complex mechanism that involves various different channels that open and close and allow different electrolytes to move across. That changes the electrical charge at the surface of your myocytes. And that what then is what then causes them to contract, to fire. And so we'll talk about drugs that work at various points in this process as well. So let's start by looking at the drugs that might block or block I'm sorry, block or bind the sympathetic nerve receptors, your alpha and beta receptors. Just as a review, because we haven't done the nervous system yet in this class, remember that you have different parts of the nervous system, your central nervous system, your brain, spinal cord, and then your peripheral nervous system. The peripheral nervous system, some is voluntary, but here we're talking about involuntary mechanisms. And there you've got the sympathetic side, which you know better as your fight or flight response. And 
and you'll recognize the different neurotransmitters here, epinephrine and norepinephrine, or you may know better as adrenaline and noradrenaline. Those are also called catecholamines. Now those are going to bind with alpha and beta receptors at the nerve synapse. Now this is compared to your conservation side. So you always have checks and balances, right? After you have a fight or flight response, you need to return things back to normal. And that's where your parasympathetic nervous system comes into play. We're not really gonna go into that here because it has less applicability to treating cardiovascular disease. We're gonna concentrate right here on your alpha and beta receptors. Now, your adrenergic or um, sympathetic nervous system receptors can be categorized into alpha and beta, and then you've even got subsets of those as well. So when you stimulate, when stimulated, this is the response that you get. When an alpha-1 receptor is stimulated, you will get a vasoconstriction of your peripheral blood vessels. And what do you think that does? When you do that and get a peripheral vasoconstriction, you're gonna get an increase in the resistance. That increases blood pressure. So you can see where I'm going here. If we're looking for a drug to reduce blood pressure, it's possible that I may want to block an alpha-1 receptor so that instead I get a lower blood pressure. We're not really gonna talk about alpha-2 receptors too much in this class, but I do wanna talk about beta-1 and beta-2 receptors. Beta-1 receptors, when they are stimulated, they increase your heart rate and force of contraction. And this should make sense. If you're going through a fight or flight response, right, you need to be ready and you're gonna kind of knock things up a notch. So you're gonna get an increased heart rate. So if we need, if we're having a tachycardia, an increased heart rate, and we want to decrease it, then we might block a beta receptor, which will then lead to a decrease in heart rate. Now we've also got beta-2 receptors, and these work not only on some of your blood vessels, but also in the lungs. And so we'll actually come back talking about these a little bit more because they are typically part of treating asthma because they end up leading to bronchodilation. So here we will try to stimulate a beta-2 receptor when we're treating asthma to dilate those um, uh, airways so that we are getting more oxygen into the lungs. So this will come into play a little bit when we get into talking about beta blockers in the cardiovascular system because ideally you don't wanna block these or you will end up with respiratory side effects to a cardiovascular drug. So that's the way that you can treat cardiovascular disease through the sympathetic nervous system. But what about looking at the action potential of your cardiac muscle? Now here, this is something that happens, as I said, based on the flow of electrolytes through these channels. So if this is a cell membrane, and this is the outside extracellular fluid, and this is the intracellular fluid, the most common cation or positively charged ion on the outside of your cells is sodium. So here at the first part of the action potential, what happens is you get a rapid influx of sodium into the cell. And you'll see there's three arrows here, meaning that there's quite a bit of it that's coming through. Well, that changes the charge across the surface. So you get this, this change in the membrane potential right? You've built up a charge now. Well, to sort of try to balance things, the next part of it 
is an opening of potassium channels. And potassium channels go on from, they're the most common cation on the inside of cells, and they will move across trying to balance out that charge. Then next, you're going to get calcium channels opening. Calcium moves from outside to inside as potassium continues its movement to the outside. And then finally you end up with, as that muscle um, contracts, you have to get things back to normal so that it's ready for another cycle. And so you'll see this kind of wraps around here, okay? So this stage four, you're actually going to have work from the potassium, sodium potassium ATPase pump. So you actually use energy to move some of those ions back and forth across that membrane so that they're ready to fire again. Because if all the sodium is still on the inside of the cell, it will not be ready for phase zero again as we get into this action potential. So as you'll see here in a little bit, we could address various parts of this action potential to treat a cardiovascular disease, specifically an arrhythmia, by addressing or blocking the sodium channels, the potassium channels, the calcium channels, or even somehow altering how the sodium-potassium ATPase pump works. And by the way, this action potential here, the nice image, um, corresponds a little bit um, for your understanding of how the EKG or ECG would look in relation to um, the action potential in the cardiac myocytes. So here's kind of a summary slide. I've thrown a lot at you already, and now we're going to get into some detail. So this is kind of a way to organize things. I told you that we could address treating cardiovascular disease in some cases by working on the sympathetic nervous system, your adrenergic um, receptors. So that's what we're going to talk about when we get into these drugs. I also said that you could address it by looking at the parts of the action potential. So that's what you see here, sodium, potassium, calcium channels, and one of the drug categories that affects the sodium potassium ATPase pump here is cardiotonics. So that's that other section. Now we also could address the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, and that will come into play particularly with hypertension. We'll talk about that. We also may want to dilate things in order to treat angina. Or we may need to look at, in addition to some of these other drugs, reducing your blood volume, particularly if you have hypertension or heart failure. And then, as I mentioned before, for atherosclerosis, we need to get at those two big parts of the atheroma formation, and that is lipids and platelets. So let's go through each of these to get a better understanding of them. Let's start by talking about those adrenergic drugs. So these are adrenergic binding, meaning that they are actually going to mimic the sympathetic nervous system. They are going to induce, essentially, a fight-or-flight type response. Now, why would I want to do that? Well, in some cases, if someone is hypovolemic, in other words, they've gone into shock, this would be a way to... to um, increase blood volume perhaps, and even counteract some of those symptoms of shock. So it's used in severe hypotension or orthostatic hypotension. It can actually be used because one of the things that happens as part of your fight or flight response is vasoconstriction. We can use that to our advantage if we're trying to control superficial bleeding. So some of these drugs even are used in surgery, for example. 
This obviously is a drug of choice if someone is in cardiac arrest or heart block. So sudden cardiac arrest, um, a complication of a heart attack, an a, a acute myocardial infarction for heart block and other types of arrhythmias, specifically your ventricular arrhythmias, VTAC, VFib, these would be drugs of choice for here. But for the most part, um, I'm going to talk more about some of your drugs that are used in treating acute myocardial infarction and hypertension. So let's go into some of those. So as I said, when you have drugs that are going to block the adrenergic receptors, we are essentially blocking the fight or flight response, which will help us decrease heart rate, decrease blood pressure. And that is one of the large approaches to treating cardiovascular disease. So here, your alpha adrenergic blockers are going to do the opposite of what alpha receptors do when they're stimulated. When alpha receptors are stimulated, they are going to vasoconstrict. So by blocking that, we're gonna get vasodilation. So these are possible drugs that may be used here in order to reduce blood pressure. And this sounds like a fancy term, beta adrenergic blockers, but you've probably heard of these before, right? These are just abbreviated often beta blockers. So they are going to block the beta receptors. And I'll talk in a little bit here more about these because it can be important to determine whether you need to block the beta-1 or beta-2 receptors. Because as I said, mostly most of your beta-2 action is going to be used when we're trying to address asthma. And we don't want a respiratory side effect of trying to treat cardiovascular disease. Now we can also instead um, prevent the release of those neurotransmitters. So instead of blocking the receptors, which is what's happening here, you could actually do what's called an anti-adrenergic. Here you're preventing the release of that neurotransmitter from this side, okay, as opposed to blocking the receptor itself. So that's another category of drugs here. Now there are some that are specific to, as I said, alpha and beta, and then there are others that could do both. So we'll come back here to the beta blockers in a little bit, but I kind of wanted to put all these under one slide so that you remember that they have to do with the adrenergic nervous system. Because to move on here, one of those actually overlaps into the antidysrhythmic drugs. You'll see here class two is actually beta blockers. So I want to use this structure to form the next few slides that we go through because many of these drugs are used for multiple different things that we have learned about so far. For example, antidysrhythmic drugs obviously are used for arrhythmias. However, and that's because, guess what? These class one, class two, class three, class four, they address different parts of that cardiac action potential. Therefore, they're perfect for addressing arrhythmias. However, it turns out many of them have multiple effects in the body, and so they're also sometimes used to address hypertension, acute myocardial infarction, or heart failure. So we're gonna use this as a structure to go through the rest of this um, section. So class one, and sometimes you'll see these in Roman numerals, and sometimes you'll see them as actually Arabic numerals, like one, two, three, four, and five. So just be aware that either one is acceptable. So your class one antidysrhythmics are your sodium channel. So that's what you see here. And we'll go through some common examples of those. 
but unfortunately they didn't really go in order all the way across here. Your class two agents actually address the sympathetic nervous system. These are beta blockers, which I just mentioned. So they're not really gonna show up on this chart as much as you're going to see them in as part of the sympathetic nervous system. They do end up causing some changes to the part that um, is found on the action potential here. However, they don't directly address um, your sodium calcium channels. Class three is where you get your potassium channels. Class four is your calcium channels and also affects the AV node. And so that's why it can be helpful in arrhythmias. And then class five agents, they don't really fit in either this sympathetic nervous system thing or action potential thing. They have some other mechanisms. So it's sort of a catch-all for things that don't fit in the first four categories. And the main one we'll talk about here is digoxin. And it functions to address the sodium potassium ATPase pump. Now, in order to help you memorize this, something that has always helped me is if I sort of write them out in order, your sodium channel blockers, your beta blockers, your potassium blockers, calcium blockers. And because the main one we're gonna talk about here is digoxin, I just put D here. So this is your class one, class two, class three, class four, and class five. So you could remember NABKCAD. If you like mnemonic devices, if that helps you to sort of remember things without um, as much um, sort of memorizing a list. NABKCAD will allow you to just sort of write that on a piece of paper or at the top of your exam or something. And so then you can move forward with remembering which category we're talking about. And that's assuming you're actually writing something down. If you're taking a computer test, it doesn't help as much unless you're writing it on some notebook paper. Let's go through each of these individually then. Your sodium channel blockers, remember, are your class one antidysrhythmics. And what these do then is they address this very first part of the cardiac action potential. And by altering the influx of sodium, you are going to prolong that rest period, that period that happens right before you get a change in the cardiac, um, the the potential, electrical potential at the surface of that myocardial um, cell. Then what you're gonna get here is it's gonna increase the fibrillation threshold, decrease the conduction velocity, and in the end, lowers the heart rate because it's going to actually extend the time between the contractions. So it suppresses tachycardias. That's one of its main uses here. And you may recognize some of these. There's even subclasses here. Procainamide, lidocaine. Um, let me think of some of the other ones. Um, mixilatine is actually a oral version of lidocaine because they are related to each other. Um, and these are ones that some of them may be used beyond just cardiovascular. So I mentioned that you can use some of these as a topical anesthetic. And those may be something that you have gotten at the dentist office, for example, because you're having dental work. They may put some of one of these categories of drugs into your gums if you're going to have a cavity filled, things like that. Your second 
class of antiarrhythmics is your beta blockers. These also have multiple different subcategories. And in fact, the way that you can look at these is how selective they are. Remember that I said that you have beta-1 and beta-2 receptors, and stimulation of each of these produces a different response. So what would happen here, ideally, is that we're isolating the cardiovascular effects of the beta receptors as opposed to the respiratory effects of blocking beta receptors. So um, your sort of classic first generation of your beta blockers didn't really distinguish between beta 1 and beta 2 receptors. And for that reason, they would have issues with um, bronchoconstriction in the lungs. Because remember, when you stimulate a beta 2 receptor, you're supposed to get bronchodilation. So if you block it, you're going to end up with bronchoconstriction. This leads to exercise fatigue, and in people with asthma, that can worsen, or COPD, that can worsen their current lung condition. It also even has effects on your glucose metabolism, so you have to be careful for the metabolic effects of that in diabetics. So ideally, you want to use one of the later generation, such as atenolol, that's um, one you may recognize. And that is because it is more beta-1 selective. And by doing that, you won't get the issues and side effects related to the lungs. You will isolate it to the beta-1 receptors that are primarily with your cardiovascular system. What about the potassium channel blockers? These are class 3 antiarrhythmics, and one that you may recognize the name of here is amiodarone. And what this does has multiple effects. It affects the action potential and refractory period. It increases the ventricular fibrillation threshold, but doesn't affect conduction velocity or any of those other parts of the action potential. So here it's going to, in general, prolong the action potential. But I'm less worried about you knowing this category as I am about you knowing calcium channel blockers. Calcium channel blockers are a little bit more important and you'll see these more often. They are class four anti-dysrhythmics or anti-arrhythmics and they have many, many uses. Not only are they used for arrhythmias, they are also used for hypertension because they produce peripheral vasodilation. You happen to have calcium channels both in your heart vessels and in your peripheral vascular system. You will also get a decrease in heart rate as a result of using calcium channel blockers. And so this process is going to be quite beneficial for many different things. However, opposite from beta blockers, where you want to try to isolate a particular receptor, here you want to be non-selective. Non-selective calcium channel blockers are better because what can happen is if you are stimulating only one of your calcium channels, either the heart or the vascular system, you could end up with the body sort of having a reflex response, a baroceptor response. And that means that the heart is going to detect a drop in pressure. And so then you're going to end up increasing the heart rate because the, the heart thinks it needs to compensate. Now, in order to avoid that, we want one that addresses both myocardial and vascular calcium channels. 
And that's where you get these drugs coming into play. And the one that you probably have heard of before or potentially have seen commercials for is amlodipine or Norvasc. And so that's one of your important ones here because, as I said, you're going to see that come back up multiple times as we move through the rest of this lecture because of its use in hypertension and in angina and even in acute AMI, your AMI situation. So the last category in antiarrhythmics includes digoxin or linoxin, and that actually comes from a plant, from the digitalis flower. And that is used as a class five antiarrhythmic. And the way that this works is it gets at the very, very end of the action potential where you are trying to rebalance all of those electrolytes. So in this case, remember you had sodium rushing in and calcium rushing out. Well, what's gonna happen here is this ATPase pump is gonna try to get all of these things back on their correct side. So what you're gonna see here is that you end up accumulating calcium in the cell because in addition to this ATPase pump, you also have a sodium-calcium exchanger because you'll notice this is sodium and potassium. Well, where's calcium come in? You have another protein in the surface of the membrane that exchanges sodium and calcium. And this is where you're going to see a change. That will accumulate the calcium in the cell, which increases the force of contraction. Now, why would I want to do that? Well, in heart failure, this can be pretty important because... Remember, heart failure is an issue of not getting enough cardiac um, um, output. So by increasing the force of the myocardial contraction, you can get a greater cardiac output. At the same time, and one of the reasons it can be used for other things, is that it depresses the sinoatrial node and decreases the impulses later on down through the AV node. The issue that comes into play with drugs in this category particularly with digoxin, is that it has a narrow therapeutic index. And if you remember back to the pharmacology lecture, what that means is that the therapeutic and the toxic doses overlap. If you remember when we had that chart, if this is the therapeutic graph and this is the toxic graph, ideally you don't want these to overlap. But in this case, they do. So that means some people in here could be either in the therapeutic range or they could be at the low end of the toxic range. So in order to be careful about this, there is a very specific process you have to go through looking at weight, your kidney function, because remember that's part of your excretion, your age, and part of that may have to do with um, your liver function as well, any other medications, and all of these together create an equation that helps determine a very careful selection of the dosage. And there may even be some evaluation of toxicity. Thankfully, it has a short duration of action, which means if you withhold the drug, the toxicity can resolve. But if it becomes too toxic, it can actually be um, something that is lethal. So because we're talking about heart failure, I should mention that not just digoxin or linoxin is used here. You can also use ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, and because one of the issues, if you recall our description of heart failure, is that you get edema either in the peripheral system or edema in the lungs, depending on whether it's left or right-sided heart failure. 
Diuretics can be really important to get rid of the extra fluid that begins to accumulate. So here's kind of a mnemonic. If you put all this down, it becomes the beginning of the alphabet, right? A, B, C, and depending on whether you memorize it as cardiotonic or cardiac glycoside or digoxin, there's either two C's or two D's, depending on which way you'd like to sort of keep track of them. And this is a nice little graphic because it tells you that if, I don't know if you've noticed, many times the drugs in each category have a similar ending. So many of the drugs that are in the ACE inhibitor category, like enalapril, end in pril. Many of the drugs in the beta blockers category end in alol or lol. So propanerol, enderol, atenolol. And your calcium channel blockers are a little bit harder in the sense that some of those have different endings. I talked about amlodipine, so that dipine ending you can um, see is, and I mentioned with cardiotonics that there are several different, but we're really concentrating largely on digoxin. And then from here, you'll notice we haven't talked about diuretics yet. So let's go ahead and do that. When we talk about diuretics, I mentioned that they're used in heart failure mainly because you end up getting edema, a backup of fluid into the peripheral system or in the lungs, depending on which it is, left or right-sided. Well, diuretics are also a really important part of treating blood pressure because as we've talked about, one of the potential things that leads to an increase in blood pressure is that renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, where you get an increase in blood volume. So not only could you use those drugs that affect the RAA system, like ACE inhibitors and angiotensin-converting um, or angiotensin receptor blockers, but you can also try to get at that same idea of blood volume by causing someone to decrease their blood volume. And this is where we get into diuretics. And I'll talk about the three main categories of these as well. The other ones here you've already learned about that might be used in treating blood pressure along with diuretics and drugs in the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. These are your adrenergics, right? Your beta blockers, your alpha blockers, mainly because your alpha blockers, if you remember, are vasodilators, which are very helpful, okay? And you'll see those, them all over here. This is your sympathetic inhibitors. Then you've also got calcium channel blockers, which again, we've learned, have also a vasodilator effect. They've kind of gotten smart, though, in realizing that some people may need to address their elevated blood pressure by taking more than one type of drug here. So they've combined some drugs into one pill. Lopressor is a trade name for a drug that contains both a diuretic and a beta blocker in one pill. Or Lotrel, that actually contains two different antihypertensives, again, in one pill. So these combination therapies can be quite helpful. And I'll talk in a minute about a couple other ones that in addition to specifically the ones used to treat hypertension, there are some that will treat both hypertension and um, elevated lipids in the same pill. So what is this whole diuretic thing? Well, I mentioned that it's pretty important to reduce blood volume and reduce edema in hypertension and in heart failure. And one of the easiest ways to go about doing that is to have some sort of effect on the kidneys. So if you can increase the excretion of sodium and chloride in the kidneys, water does what it does best and follows 
sodium, right? It kind of has a love relationship with sodium. It's going to follow it. For the same reason that when you have super salty meals, you retain water. If you get rid of salt, you will then get rid of water. So that's largely what you're going to do here in taking a diuretic. And by doing this, that essentially lowers the blood volume and therefore decreases peripheral resistance and lowers blood pressure. Now there are three main categories here called thiazides, loop diuretics, and potassium sparing diuretics. And they differ by where in the nephron they have their action. So I know we haven't had the kidney lecture yet, but this is a nephron, okay, kind of drawn out here. You've got a blood supply coming in to the nephron and the kidney, and you filter across into the tubules. And at various places in the tubules, you concentrate that filtrate, and then eventually you get urine, right? Well, so what these drugs do then is they work at various points along these tubules to affect the sodium, calcium, chloride, potassium excretion. And so don't worry as much about these two. The main categories we're going to learn in this class are your thiazides, your loop diuretics, and the potassium sparing diuretics. The first thing that a physician is probably going to choose here is something in the thiazide category. And um, one of the names that might sound familiar here or that um, you could come across in future practice is hydro water, chloro, you'll see that it affects part of your chloride, um, sodium and chloride, hydrochlorothiazide. And sometimes it's a trade name, hydrodiuryl. Again, the name kind of tells you what it does. This is going to be the first choice. And that is because if it doesn't work, they need to have a backup. And that's when you get into the more strong or more potent drugs. This is the trade name Lasix, which is a generic name of furosemide. And again, as I said, they address different parts of the tubules. So here, your thiazides actually work up here in the distal convoluted tubule. As opposed to the loop diuretics, they work in the loop of Henle, which is this, if you remember from anatomy and physiology, the part where you have the biggest concentration of your urine. But those work um, more strongly. And in fact, because they also affect potassium and you could end up getting rid of too much potassium and then have an arrhythmia of the heart, we have to be really careful with this. So sometimes a potassium sparing diuretic is used in combination with a loop diuretic in order to keep the potassium excretion at a minimum. And that is because your potassium sparing diuretics do what they say. They spare the potassium and increase your retention of it. And that's partly because ideally we want to just get rid of the sodium and chloride, not so much the other things like potassium, which is pretty important to maintaining some of your um, cardiac action potential. Now, what's nice about your potassium sparing diuretics, they are weak and can help with management of potassium, but they also have this benefit of inhibiting aldosterone. And if you remember in the RAA system, renin, angiotensin, aldosterone, aldosterone works in the kidneys to increase your reabsorption of water. And so by inhibiting aldosterone, you are also going to get an effect in the kidneys with the hormonal regulation of water and its reabsorption there. And the one that you may um, want to recognize here is spironolactone, also called 
aldactone, which is helpful because it sounds like aldosterone. But these three are going to be in your diuretics category used for hypertension and heart failure. Well, when we're talking about the RAA system, we've got to look at um, some ways that we can inhibit that in addition to perhaps diuretics. And here for addressing blood pressure, this becomes really important. These can also be used in heart failure, but for hypertension, these are one of your, your sort of first drugs that are used. So if you remember again, the RAA system starts with renin in the kidneys and angiotensin one is converted to angiotensin two by this ACE converting enzyme. And it is that effect of angiotensin II that leads to an increase in blood pressure by producing peripheral vasoconstriction and an increase in blood volume. Part of that increase in blood volume happens through the aldosterone in the RAA system where you retain sodium and then therefore fluid to increase blood volume. So ideally, if you could block this enzyme, you won't get the peripheral vasoconstriction. You won't get the increased blood volume and therefore your blood pressure should ideally go down rather than be elevated. And some drug examples here are captopril or capitin, enalapril or vasotec, and that's one of the ones that I tend to remember. The ideal thing about this is if you've got somebody being treated for hypertension and they can't take a beta blocker, um, or they have an arrhythmia, this might be another way to do that because it doesn't affect people who are diabetic, it doesn't impact, impact people who are asthmatic or have COPD, and you don't have the exercise intolerance you might have with a beta blocker. So this can be beneficial. Of course, there's always a double-edged sword with some of these. While you may have better luck using this, um, compared to beta blockers in some populations, you also have some side effects that can be sort of annoying to people. They can develop a dry cough, a rash, a sort of metallic taste in their mouth. And if somebody also needs to regularly take antacids or NSAIDs because of either indigestion or they have a chronic pain syndrome, then there's an interaction between some ACE inhibitors and antacids. You also can't use these in combination with potassium-sparing diuretics, which if you're treating for heart failure could be an issue when you're using diuretics. So again, these are chosen very carefully. It's possible if this isn't ideal, you could use something that instead of blocking the conversion of angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2, instead what if you just block the receptors for it? And that's what angiotensin II receptor blockers do. So rather than blocking it here as ACE inhibitors do, it blocks it down here at the actual receptor. And there are a couple different types of angiotensin II receptors, and it's largely the angiotensin one, um, I'm sorry, angiotensin II one receptor. And these again are used in those places where let's say you can't take a beta blocker. You can't take an ACE inhibitor either because of the adverse side effects. So this could be an option when some of those earlier ones aren't ideal. Okay, so again, we've talked about a ton of stuff. We talked about treatment of heart failure. We talked about treatment of um, hypertension. But what about angina? Well, 
We can use one of the drugs we already talked about, your calcium channel blockers, because remember, one of the things that they do, particularly if you're using a non-selective calcium channel blocker like amlodipine, is you can dilate coronary and peripheral arteries. That's going to increase oxygen to the heart and reduce the workload. So in fact, it is an oral drug that's often used for people who have a classic or stable angina. And this is a great um, graphic here because it kind of gives you an idea of when you might use some of these. So organic nitrates um, like nitroglycerin are one that might be used as an acute treatment. So let's say someone has a episode of chest pain and they've been diagnosed with angina in the past, they quite often will carry this drug with them. And what's great about it is that it's sublingual, so it's just under the tongue, and it has an onset of action in three minutes. So it's very rapid, and that's because it is absorbed directly into the bloodstream there under the tongue, doesn't have to go through the GI system or the liver. Now there are forms of this as well that may be used instead of a calcium channel blocker as a transdermal patch or an oral dosage. Um, but the one that I'm primarily concerned with you understanding is that nitroglycerin is what somebody might use for that acute treatment of an anginal attack. Now what if we're trying to get at that atherosclerosis thing, right? That's the underlying pathophysiology that you might find in an AMI that you would find in a um, hemorrhagic, not hemorrhagic, but in a um, thrombotic stroke. It is the underlying thing that, along with hypertension, ends up progressing cardiovascular disease. So we may need to, at times, depending on the lipid profile of an individual, try to reduce their lipids and also reduce the clotting, those two sides of the development of an atheroma. Well, let's talk about how you might go about doing that. So there's several different types of drugs in this category, and they do different things, but the endpoint might be similar. So anticoagulants are going to alter or prevent coagulation in some way, as opposed to thrombolytics, which are going to break down a clot that may already be there. So let's talk about some examples. Heparin if you recall back to the clotting cascade, is one of those naturally occurring parts of the clotting mechanism in our body. It is released by basophils or mast cells as part of the, the um, cellular response when you are having a clotting episode. It's kind of the checks and balances that your body has. Now what it does, it, it activates thrombin and factor 10A. However, this is not something that you can take at home. It has to be done in a hospital because it is a parenteral, in other words, IV administration. And sometimes you will hear it referred to as low molecular weight heparin. It can't be taken just as a pill at home. So many times if someone needs an anticoagulant treatment, they may be getting heparin in a hospital, but then go home and get transitioned to some oral drug that is an anticoagulant. So these are two common oral anticoagulants. One that was used for a pretty long time and actually was developed from a rat poison that caused bleeding in rats to kill them was warfarin, and sometimes called coumarin or coumadin. And what this would do is it would interfere with the clotting cascade that specifically used vitamin K. So some of your clotting factors in the clotting cascade required vitamin K in order to push things down the line in the clotting cascade. 
So by interrupting this, they were able to reduce that clotting at the endpoint. Now the issue with this is, this is dependent on vitamin K, which means diet, and you'll see this in one of our case studies later in the semester, diet can be an issue because if someone doesn't have a consistent amount of vitamin K in their diet, then they're not going to get a consistent amount of anticoagulation. So this requires frequent blood tests. And the test that we're looking for here is the PTINR. And that's because your vitamin K dependent clotting factors are part of that side of the clotting cascade. And so this can be frustrating for some people when they have to be on this drug. They have to watch their diet in terms of vitamin K. They have to have regular blood tests to make sure it's in the right range. So um, more recently, there was a development of non-vitamin K dependent oral anticoagulants. And you may have seen some commercials about this before because this became um, kind of a godsend for people. They they didn't want to have to worry about their diet. They hated having this regular... Um, blood draws to see if they were in the right range. And so these don't require the regular testing and it's not vitamin K dependent. Pradaxa, Zarelto, and Eliquis are trade names and they're still under patent. So those, that's why those names may sound familiar to you. Now, what if somebody wants to prevent an episode of a heart attack. And this has become more controversial lately because we've realized that there is a balance with all of these in terms of bleeding episodes and controlling clotting. So there is a side effect of aspirin in that it inactivates platelets. So in addition to the term anticoagulants, you will sometimes see the term antiplatelet drugs. So what happens with these is they decrease the aggregation of platelets. This is why it can be really important to have a full dose adult strength aspirin on hand if someone is suspected of having a heart attack. Because as I mentioned in the previous lecture, it can be critical to have them take the adult aspirin and chew it to prevent further accumulation of platelets before your EMS squad gets there. So that's part of using them in myocardial infarction and stroke prevention. That would be the acute part of it. And in some cases, a physician may think that the benefit outweighs the risk and they may take a low-dose aspirin daily. Now, what if that clot is already there? So this would be another acute prevention or acute treatment for both a heart attack and a stroke. So this would dissolve in a clot that's already there. Drugs like streptokinase, urokinase, and they're going to even most likely go in and do these right at the site. So they may do a cardiac catheterization and introduce this drug right to the site so that you're dissolving that clot. So the other side of atherosclerosis is your anti-lip or your anti hyperlipidemic drugs, also called lipid-lowering drugs. The biggest category that you've probably heard of or have family members taking are statins. And that's sort of a, a, a common term for the family that is HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors. This is an enzyme. HMG-CoA reductase works in the liver to create cholesterol. So what happens here is if you can block this enzyme, then you will reduce cholesterol. The issue is here that many people will notice muscle tremors, 
with this drug. And so some people and some of those um, that muscle damage can be permanent if it's taken for a long time. So they have to really kind of watch this. And some people may have to alter their dosage or mention to their doctor that they're experiencing this and perhaps either change the drug or try a different type of drug. Some of these you've heard of. They're Generic names almost always contain the, the term statin at the end, but many of the brand names contain or at the end. So Lipitor, Crestor, Zocor. And here's a really big combo therapy one that I'd like you to know. Remember I said before that what if somebody has multiple risk factors for cardiovascular disease? Let's say that they have a bad lipid profile and they also have hypertension. Well, it can be frustrating if you have grandparents or parents who are on multiple drugs to have to take so many pills every day. So what they did was they put these two drugs together, Lipitor and a calcium channel blocker, amlodipine specifically. And combining Lipitor and amlodipine, they came up with the brand name Cadoit. And one way you can remember that is CA is the calcium channel blocker. And Duet is usually the term that you refer to when two people are working together, like in a musical performance, a duet. So this drug is great because it can be taken by people who have two different risk factors, a bad lipid profile, and high blood pressure. Now, what if they have side effects from statins? They could try bile acid sequestrants. So what happens here is if, if you think back to anatomy and physiology, one of the things that your liver does is it produces bile acids and bile acids are made with cholesterol. So what happens is you excrete bile into the gut and then as part of your normal physiology, you do end up reabsorbing some of those to recycle the cholesterol. So what happens here is a bile acid sequestrant blocks that process of reabsorption. And so by not reabsorbing reabsorb as many bile acids, now the liver must make more, which uses cholesterol. And that then will decrease the cholesterol in the bloodstream because the liver is now taking it from the bloodstream to use it to make new bile acids. And these are some brand names of drugs that do that. You could also have drugs that work at the gut level to inhibit your absorption of lipids. Now, the majority of your cholesterol actually is made in the liver. So your dietary cholesterol has less of a effect on your blood cholesterol than we used to think. So part of that is just genetic. You may have the best diet in the world, but still have high cholesterol. And that's because genetically your liver is meant to make more based on the coding it received in its genetics. So in some cases, you may need to actually inhibit the absorption of it in the gut. And this is what Zetia does. Zetia is going to prevent the absorption of cholesterol that happens from your diet. Um, and there's another combo therapy here. If somebody has particularly high level of lipids, they may need to get at a couple different places in this process. And so for those, they may take Vitorin, which you may have seen advertised, which is a combination of this gut level absorption in Zetia and a statin. So that is neat because it's two Zs. It makes it easy to remember. Vitorin is two Zs, Zetia and Zocor. Now you notice I skipped over one and that's because it's a little bit different. Fibric acid derivatives do something a little bit different. These are reserved more for people 
who have high triglycerides. So they work a little bit differently. They still have this core ending, and so don't confuse them with a statin. They work a little bit differently. But here, this is going to be more diet dependent. So while your LDL, HDL, and all of that might be largely determined by genetics and what your liver does as opposed to your diet, triglycerides are affected by diet. In fact, they go up in the bloodstream when you have a particularly fatty meal. And so for those that have an inability to kind of control that, they may need to take a drug called Tricor. Okay, Whew. that was a lot, right? All these different drug categories and what makes them even more confusing is the fact that some of these are used for multiple different forms of cardiovascular disease. But if you can go through this list and perhaps even print a copy of just this um, page or the slide and write next to each category some examples of drugs so that you could recognize them, you might be able to sort of start to keep it straight. You may also find that sort of putting them into categories again can be helpful in terms of their mechanisms of action. So remember, for example, these two. These work with the sympathetic nervous system. In one case, they may stimulate it, your adrenergic. In other cases, they may block it, and that's where your beta blockers come in. In some cases, they may work on the cardiac action potential. We had those five categories of antiarrhythmics, which was your sodium, potassium, calcium channels, and then drugs like digoxin, which work on the sodium potassium ATPase pump. And then there was another one in the middle that didn't quite fit. Remember, your beta blockers were also in that NABK-CAD five categories of antiarrhythmics. Then you also have drugs that work on the RAA system, the ACE inhibitors and angiotensin II receptor blockers. Those can be pretty important in hypertension. Organic nitrates, those were a big part, along with calcium channel blockers, of addressing angina, particularly nitroglycerin in an acute anginal attack of chest pain. Now, for hypertension and for heart failure, diuretics are one of your first um, parts of the therapy, along with lifestyle modification. But in general, if you're trying to reduce risk of cardiovascular events, particularly from, remember, atherosclerosis, which is the biggest pathophysiology in cardiovascular disease, you may need to both lower lipids and reduce the risk of coagulation. So try to go through these and think about them in terms of treatment, the actual pathophysiology that's going on in each of these diseases, and they will make a little bit more sense if you can kind of imagine, and if you're one of those visual learners, draw it out, um, what they're actually doing in terms of the various types of diseases so that you can maybe try to keep these straight. But if at any point as you go through this, you have any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know.